global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. On Good Value, hear discussions about Antipodes' best investment ideas and perspectives on industry and macroeconomic trends. Today we're going to talk about a theme that we think will be one of the most important for investors over the coming decade and beyond. In fact, not only is it important for investors, it's important for economies and society in general, yet it remains an investment super cycle few have taken notice of, until perhaps recently. We're discussing decarbonisation. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. I'm Alison Savas and joining me for this episode is Antipodes Hardware, Industrials and Commodities Portfolio Manager, Graham Hay. Hi Alison. Graham. We've been talking to investors about decarbonisation for a while now, and our own exposure to decarbonisation beneficiaries has grown to around 15% of the portfolio. Can you take us back to a time when portfolio managers like yourself really started taking notice of this as a prospective long-term investment theme? Uh, Sure, Alison. Look, Europe has had a a focus on green policies for for some time now, and in fact is taking a multi-layered approach in reducing emissions. Look, I think when things really started to get serious for some investors was Europe's multi-trillion euro new green deal announced in 2019. The European Green Deal is on one hand our vision for a climate neutral continent in 2050, and it's on the other hand a very dedicated roadmap to this goal. The European Green Deal is our new growth strategy. That was Ursula von der Leyen talking about the deal in the days after she was elected President of the European Commission in late 2019. You heard the ambitious headline goal there, but it's more than just a vision. This decarbonisation is policy in motion. There's a €4 trillion commitment over the next decade that includes a legally binding target to cut emissions by a minimum of 55% by 2030 versus levels of 1990, and that may be increased to a further 60% next year following a recent proposal made by the European Parliament. The New Green Deal is anchored by Europe's emissions trading scheme, one of the only uh, schemes of its kind in the world that was set up in 2005, targeting emission reductions primarily in the power sector. Power producers must purchase certificates under the scheme to offset carbon emissions. But the number of certificates available each year is reduced, which further forces power producers to switch to renewables. The neat part of the system is that the funds generated from the sale of the certificates, uh, roughly around 20 to 40 billion euros each year, can then be used to subsidise reductions in fossil fuels elsewhere. For example, the subsidies of EVs or to replace gas with green electricity for heating and cooling in buildings. As electrification occurs in other sectors, this could lead to a 40% increase in the demand for electricity, which in turn puts even more pressure on power companies to switch to renewables. In fact, according to our analysis, you could see a five-fold increase in renewable output, such as wind and solar, from around 18% of total power generation today to something like 60% by 2030. 
Would you say that Europe has the most aggressive decarbonisation targets globally? Today, that's a very fair statement. Uh, what our listeners may not realise is that Europe is in fact a net importer of fossil fuels. So reducing dependence on these imports is accretive to GDP. Uh, we like to consider it uh, as the difference between importing barrels of oil from outside of the EU and sending the money outside of the, of the Eurozone versus, for example, funding a wind farm in Germany. The, in fact, the cost of utility-scale wind and solar projects has fallen rapidly, uh, such that generating power from renewables is today cheaper than nuclear, coal and gas. Uh, the challenge, however, for renewables, of course, is the sun does not always shine and the wind doesn't always blow to meet up or match up with peak, peak demand. So this is going to require investment to both store energy and to strengthen the grid in order to distribute renewable energy. But in Europe, electricity prices need, need only go up by about 8% in order to fund that investment, allowing Europe to use more renewables as baseload capacity. It's worth reiterating that the $4 trillion announced under the new Green Deal is equivalent to incremental investment of more than 2% of GDP per annum over the next decade. Uh, and, and according to analysis that we've looked at, that could create an additional 20 million jobs, which we think is a pretty interesting backdrop given Europe's starting point. It's also worth noting uh, China's goals in this context. Uh, China has become increasingly vocal about its concerns with greenhouse gas emissions, but is more, it has a more immediate focus on reducing city-based pollution. Uh, the most effective and, and effective way of targeting that is the introduction and acceleration of electric vehicles. Uh, in fact, last month, China's policymakers announced that new energy vehicles, uh, battery and plug-in hybrids, should account for about 20% of the vehicle fleet, fleet sales, that is, by 2025. Uh, that target was cut from 25% originally, but in the context of what is today the world's largest automotive market, it's a very significant target, with more than 21 million new cars sold per annum. China's looking to become a global leader in EVs and could account for as much as 40% of worldwide EV sales by 2025. To put that into context, EVs will probably have to account for 40% of Europe's car sales in 2030 in order to meet their own vehicle emission targets uh, that are currently under discussion. Okay, so we've had Europe in particular, but also parts of Asia, kickstart the decarbonisation investment cycle. But where does the US sit? You know, we've had the US election and the Democrats have spruced a major green agenda. Now, this could result in the three major economies, you know, being Europe, China and the US, all embarking on major decarbonisation programs over the next decade. Look, the US is a fascinating case study uh, because in certain areas we've already seen the development of very competitive wind and solar with the support of very targeted tax incentive programs. So it's important to remember that despite the headlines, or in this case lack of headlines, the US has been going greener and we think that continues. Um, the, the southwest of the United States of course gets plenty of sun. In fact the US has one of the richest solar resources globally with more than 10,000 gigawatts of utility scale solar plants. Uh, the Midwest complementing that has tremendous wind resources throughout the entire year. With some investment in the grid connecting the north to the south, this wind could produce electricity each and every day. Now, complementing that would require much, much more high voltage grid investment uh, to transport the electricity to load centres. But given the extent of the wind and solar the US has elsewhere, it increasingly makes economic sense for the US to make these types of investments. 
Um, the best example, in fact, is probably in Texas, a, a state that you would uh, know and, and associate with the oil and gas industry, but where we've seen a dramatic build out of solar and wind as the cost of energy has become more competitive with fossil fuels. Uh, tax credits for wind and solar investment are available, but due to expire at the end of 2021. But in all likelihood, they get extended. Uh, Republican states, in fact, have been key beneficiaries of these tax credits. And as you said, Alison, decarbonisation is an area of investment that appeals to Democrats. Uh, so we think a green policy can certainly accelerate under a Biden presidency. Unlike Europe, however, the US today doesn't have hard emission targets in place. But we think we can see similar amounts of incremental investment, uh, as we've been mentioning in Europe, uh, that could equate to something like 1% to 2% of GDP over the next decade. And Graham, the Democrats' green agenda was in the spotlight in the lead-up to the US election. Let's listen to a quick snippet from one of Joe Biden's campaign addresses. Transforming the American electrical sector to produce power without producing carbon pollution and electrifying an increased share of our economy will be the greatest spurring of job creation and economic competitiveness in the 21st century. We're going to make it easier for American consumers to switch to electric vehicles as well. As we know, Biden went on to defeat Trump, but the makeup of the Senate is still yet to be determined. So does this cast some doubt over the level of green investment spending that we could see in the US? Uh, good, good question. I mean, the, the truth is, whichever, whichever party controls the Senate, uh, be it Republican or Democrat, are going to do so with a very slim majority. Uh, at, at most three seats. Uh, we've got Senate midterm elections coming up in 2022, just as we had in November. Around a third of the Senate seats will be up for election at that time. And the bulk of those, uh, and it's in the regions of two thirds, happen to be Republican seats. So the point of that is that whichever party takes the Senate in January will be looking to cement their majority in 2022. Uh, and we think that means that there'll be a, a very much a focus from both parties on ensuring continued economic recovery. The Republicans will likely loosen the purse strings, and if the Democrats manage to pull off the so-called blue sweep, the outlook for spending will be even greater. Uh, we don't expect to see any extreme healthcare system reforms or excessive tax hikes from the Democrats, but rather market-friendly fiscal stimulus. Now, on the topic of stimulus, with the likelihood of vaccines being broadly distributed from the middle of next year, and, and certainly in the developed world at least, do you think this will impact the extent to which policymakers will continue to stimulate? Uh, look, I, I think it's important to remember that um, whilst we sit here today and the, the world economy is in a, a much, seemingly much sounder footing than it was six months ago, uh, economic growth this year in the US is still going to fall by around 4.5% and almost double that, around 8% in Europe. And unemployment against that backdrop uh, peaked in the US at 15%. And it's down down to seven percent. Uh, to put that into context, uh, during the depths of the financial crisis in 2008, unemployment in the U.S. peaked at 10 percent. So as we sit here today, there are still 10 million fewer jobs in the U.S. economy than there were pre-COVID. The situation, of course, is much worse in Europe, with unemployment at around eight and a half percent, and youth unemployment approaching 20 percent across the continent, which is clearly uh, a, a genuine issue. So. In all likelihood, the need for fiscal stimulus uh, is going to continue in order to restore economic health to what it was uh, in the years leading up to the crisis. Um, now, the arrival of vaccines will allow policymakers to pivot away from income stimulus, we think, to investment programs, and this creates employment as well as sustainable 
economic activity. Uh, importantly though, as the world goes greener, investment will happen regardless. Policymakers globally could accelerate this investment if there's concern about economic health and job creation. So just as we did in our previous episode, let's give listeners an insight into how the Antipodes portfolio was positioned for decarbonisation. Now, as I said earlier, we've been increasing exposure to our decarbonisation cluster for some time, and it's now around 15% of the portfolio, and it's split across the capital providers, material companies, and enablers. Graham, let's start with the capital providers. Sure. Um, Look, we've got around 5% exposure of the portfolio here. Um, These are primarily concentrated in in power companies that ultimately will get paid uh, a return based on investment and, and, and greening their grid. Um, one of the key holdings in that context is the, the French utility EDF. It's in fact uh, Europe's largest low-carbon electricity producer. Uh, it owns world-scale uh, nuclear, hydro and renewable assets. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we see a huge increase in demand for electricity under Europe's decarbonisation goals. And whether that's coming from ED, EVs to reduce fossil fuels, Based on or based on home heating and power generation. EDF is also uh, in a very advanced discussions with the local regulator to increase the price it receives for regulated nuclear power output, with the speculation being that a 15 to 20% uplift could come through in its regulated pricing, and that clearly would have a very material impact on its returns. Um, the company is also considering a potentially value-creating split where they'd see the company separate its nuclear and renewable businesses into an entity called EDF Green, uh, which current current investors, of course, would would hold shares in. EDF Green, uh, if it was uh, constructed this way, would form one of the largest owners and operators of renewable assets in Europe, and we think is materially undervalued uh, within the larger group today. In addition, we've got about 3% exposure to materials companies, and one of the largest holdings there is a company called Norsk Hydro, a global aluminium producer. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Aluminium smelting, of course, uh, is thought of as an old world industry that's heavily reliant on fossil fuels. Um, and, in, and, and the history of the industry is, is indeed that. But what we love about Norsk is the fact that it produces its aluminium for predominantly hydropower, which of course is sustainable. Norsk aluminium, as a result, has a dramatically lower carbon footprint. In fact, it's about 80% lower than coal-based producers. And demand for low-carbon aluminium will have a profound effect on the supply side as well, we think. On the demand side, automotive is one of the largest consumers of aluminium. The average car today uses around 180 kilos of aluminium, while larger EVs, in order to offset the um, increased weight of batteries, are increasingly replacing steel with aluminium in a process called lightweighting. For example, uh, the Tesla Model S or the Audi 8 Tron use around 700 to 800 kilos of aluminium per vehicle, a fourfold increase on the average uh, average vehicle on the road today. And that's very typical of an EV. <clears throat> we think demand from EVs, lightweighting of SUVs and low energy buildings and packaging will mean that aluminium demand can grow by at least 3% per annum, and yet Norsk today is valued at a 50% discount to its replacement cost for what we think are a very unique, a very unique set of assets. So, so that's aluminium, but there are other interesting materials that we have exposure to in the portfolio, such as nickel and copper, which are also key materials in the broader decarbonisation and electrification investment story. 
And Graham, what about the enablers, those companies that will facilitate a reduction in carbon emissions? Yeah, we have around 7% uh, here. Um, Siemens is the best example of, of that. Uh, Siemens' parent company is a global leader in factory automation. In fact, it's the only company globally that provides both the hardware to make a plant run as efficiently as possible, but also the software which controls and optimizes the processes inside the factory. And as we move into a, a low carbon world, manufacturers again have to retool. On the hardware side, this will include robots, energy efficient drives and motors to reduce energy consumption. And then on the software side, amongst other things, Siemens software allows a company to build a digital twin of its product. So rather than having to produce endless prototypes, products can be built and stress tested in software or the virtual world, uh, which is incredibly efficient. Uh, Siemens also has a smart infrastructure division in which it sells any energy efficient building, factory and grid control systems to help manage power consumption. Um, it has two other very interesting subsidiaries that we think benefit from the broader decarbonisation program. Uh, the first one is Siemens Energy, which is one of only a handful of companies globally that can produce utility scale gas turbines. Uh, the end goal may be zero emissions, uh, but, but gas remains and will be an important transition energy fuel uh, as it's much greener than coal and can help manage peak loads much better than uh, renewables uh, can at this stage. Uh, the other subsidiary that, that we, we're talking about is a company called Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy, um, uh, the world leader in offshore wind turbines, uh, which is going to be one of the main uh, engines of growth for wind investment over the next uh, decade or more. So a clear facilitator of decarbonisation. Despite how well Siemens is positioned, it's valued at just 15 times earnings. The cyclical businesses generally have fared poorly this year thanks to COVID and concerns around uh, macroeconomic health. Uh, we've also got exposure to certain automakers and, and battery companies. Uh, the market and media, of course, are obsessed with Tesla, but there are other automakers that are already uh, that, are, that already produce cars at scale and are on the front foot when it comes to electrification and likely to produce more EVs than Tesla when EV adoption really begins to ramp up over the next five years. Uh, VW, for example, out of Germany is one of the portfolio holdings and is valued at just a single digit PE multiple. Now we also own conventional energy stocks in our portfolio. How do these sit with our views on decarbonisation? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. We have around 3% of our exposure today to so-called traditional energy companies. Uh, and that's because the supply and de demand dynamics um, over the next three years look, look quite attractive. On the supply side, oil and gas capex budgets have been slashed this year with the collapse in the oil price that we had in the immediate aftermath of COVID, uh, while demand rebounds as economies recover. Uh, oil is essentially an emerging market demand story, accounting for more than 50% of demand, but where per capita consumption today still only averages 20% of OECD, level, uh, OECD levels. Uh, that said, we've been very selective. Our larger position is a company called Equinor, the former uh, Norwegian state-owned oil company. Uh, it's a traditional oil and gas company that sits at the very low end of the cost curve, but it's much of its incremental capex has gone into building offshore wind farms at very profitable returns. So in essence, it's future-proofing its business. Thanks, Graham.
And just before we finish up, I think it's worth highlighting to our listeners that since September, we have increased our exposure to global cyclicals by almost 5% to 27% of portfolio exposure. These are the companies that will be the key beneficiaries of investment stimulus. And this exposure can continue to be built out as we hear more from policymakers. We think vaccines will catalyse a cyclical rebound in economic activity, and we expect to see this in 2021. But investment stimulus can lead to a more permanent shift in investment preferences. This can catalyse a much more durable rotation into the lower multiple or value parts of the market. As I'm sure many of our listeners will remember, a super cycle in US housing and resources was born from the tech wreck. And you know, the cycle in US housing lasted all the way from 2000 to 2008. And the resources cycle was even longer, lasting all the way to 2012. So two very long value cycles. Likewise, we think fiscal spending can catalyze a similar, more sustainable rotation into value stocks with a shift to a real asset investment cycle. We haven't even touched on the opportunities in 5G and tech infrastructure, another area where we believe there is enormous opportunity and a topic I think we'll discuss in an episode in the new year. From everyone at Antipodes, we wish you a safe and happy holiday season and a happy new year. Remember, you can keep up to date with all our thought leadership and investment insights at our website, antipodespartners.com, and you can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn.